Welcome to the WP Tonic Podcast, brought to you by WPTonic.com, a WordPress maintenance and support service for business owners. We talk to the leaders in WordPress, business, and online marketing communities, bringing you insights on how to grow your business and achieve success. Now, here's the host of WP Tonic, Jonathan Dinwood and John Locke. Welcome to WP Tonic, episode 161. Today, we're talking different pricing models for web design and web development services. Before we get into today's episode, I would like to thank our sponsor. WP Tonic is being sponsored today by Liquid Web. While Liquid Web has been best known as a managed hosting company with tons of options, it's also designed a managed WordPress offering that is perfect for mission-critical sites. So if you're looking for improved performance, maximized uptime, and incredible support, Liquid Web is the partner that you've been looking for. Every Liquid Web managed WordPress customer also has iTheme Sync integrated into their management portal, allowing them to update several sites with a single touch. And if you sign up today, Using the discount code WPTONIC33, you'll get a 33% discount for the next six months. So visit liquidweb.com slash WordPress to get started. With that, on to the show. Uh, We've got a full house today uh, in the WPTONIC posse is here in full effect. So we'll just go around the room and let everybody introduce themselves. Uh, Kim, who are you and what do you do? I'm Kim Schiller. I teach people how to build WordPress websites, membership sites, and online courses. You can find me at howtobuildanonlinecourse.com or whitegloveweb.training.com. Awesome. Jackie, where are you? I'm, I'm Jackie Delia with Jackie Delia Design. I build custom WordPress development sites for clients uh, focusing on SEO and custom design. Awesome. Sally? My name is Sally Getch. <clears throat> My business is WP Fangirl. I'm organizer of the East Bay WordPress Meetup in Oakland, California. And uh, <clears throat> like uh, Jackie, I build uh, custom WordPress websites, mostly on the Genesis framework. Great. And Lee, we're in the angled crown. Who are you? Yeah, well, uh, okay. Well, I'm the uh, guy behind Angle Crown. We build WordPress websites or WordPress themes for design agencies all around the world. So that's our particular niche. And also the host of the WP Innovator podcast. Uh, And for some reason, keep getting invited back here as well, which is pretty cool. Oh, thanks. Yeah, (laughs) definitely go check that out. Uh, Jonathan, who are you? Uh, I'm the founder of WP Tonic. I'm a bit flustered this morning, aren't I, John? Uh Uh-oh. A bit flustered, don't I? But we recovered, didn't we? We did. <laughs> we did, yes. So I'm the founder, and we we support clients, agencies, all sorts of people that want a trusted word pr- pr- WordPress partner. Proper flustered. Yeah. Definite. Yeah. And I'm John Locke. My business is Lockdown Design, and I help blue-collar industries such as construction or uh, you know automotive shops with their custom WordPress development and local SEO. Uh, so we've got three WordPress news stories uh, up on the agenda today. And the first one was uh, a story from uh, about a week ago where Wix and WordPress were having a bit of a uh, kind of a disagreement. 
Yeah, uh, over the GPL license. And Wix removed the GPL license WordPress code from their mobile app, which they borrowed. Uh, and they forked the original MIT library to create their own license, the uh, EMIT license. Uh, and in an interesting uh, bit of doublespeak, they say that the original MIT license had a bug. It was too restrictive. And now... They're, they uh, created their own license, the EMIT, -E in which uh, basically you can you can distribute it, uh, but if you distribute the source code, you can't redistribute it as GPL or anything that's basically open source. Uh, you know, Kim, what what was your reaction to this story? Mm, does anything Wix does surprise you? No. <laughs> <laughs> Honestly, that was my reaction was. It's they've built themselves up to be a proprietary company, and they're they've never set out to necessarily play fair, and so that was just you know. And I don't know. I I I'd like y'all's feedback more because to me, I look at it, I go, okay, doesn't surprise me at all. But is there anything anybody can do about it in the sense of it takes court and things like that to turn these kind right. of kind of things around? And that takes a lot of money. Well, that's an intriguing question, and, and maybe Matt Mullenweg uh, will pursue it. And Jackie, what are your thoughts on this story? Well, I'm not a lawyer, but I play one on TV. There you go. <laughs> um, actually, I just think it's a way of avoiding the GPL. I mean, I think it was just a, uh, an entire design of, okay, well, how do we, how can we, uh, get out of the mess we're in and avoid getting into it again in the future. And it looks like that's the option that they've gone with. And I did read through the post and it, it looks like, you know, if it was legally challenged, it may not. The, their new license, the EMIT, doesn't look like it would, it would stand up. I guess we'll have to wait to see if that actually evolves into something. But I, I definitely think it was just a way to avoid having that code that they're working on now somehow get back into under GPL. Well, and that's true. And that's an interesting thing is they basically lifted the code from the WordPress mobile app, uh, used it as their own, and then tried to redistribute it with this like uh, license. And, and I love what you said about uh, that it might not hold up because... Uh, that's what I read too, is, is this license seems to be very flimsy. And it looks like there are people like looking into this and, and seeing how uh, legitimate it would be if challenged. Sally, what are your thoughts on this article? Uh, well, you know, it seems like kind of a peculiar response because there's nothing wrong with proprietary software. But the thing is, if you're going to create proprietary software, you need to start with proprietary software. And mm. um, so, you know, it, it, why if they say, okay, so we've, we've taken out the code from WordPress, then, you know, can't you write your own code at, at this point or, or, you know, use something with a, with a different licensing policy and then you're good to go. I mean, it, it, it seems as if it's been done to be, you know, deliberately provocative. Yeah, something that, that was in this article is, is basically said that they never intended to honor the GPL and this is just a way to not admit that they did something wrong. Uh, so, Lee, do you have thoughts on this article? 
Well, the uh, <clears throat> the bug, um, by making it, um, they said it was too restrictive. However, the original MIT actually allows you to relicense out to G GPL, which is not restrictive. They have in added a restriction to say, if you use the enhanced bug-free, which is not um, version of the license, then you cannot relicense it, you know, to GPL. So that is actually very restrictive. But also, if you read further down in the very license itself, they've obviously not read it because they've said at the beginning, "Oh no, you can't redistribute this." But then also further down the license, it says you can also redistribute this. So which is it? And that's actually highlighted in the article. You know, which which one is it? Which just seems completely nuts to me. So um, yeah, again, I would agree. I think it's uh, just an excuse not to to honour the whole you know putting code out there as GPL. I don't get what they're doing. It's silly. And Wix annoy me anyway because every time I want to watch a freaking YouTube video, the Wix advert comes up, and they know, they must know by now. <laughs> I, I'm like skip, 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 skip. Yeah, yeah they're yeah, well, yeah, they're advertising against. I feel like they're harassing me. It's just no, I'm joking. <laughs> it seems like a real, real case of like they really envy like what WordPress has. So not only do they advertise against the word WordPress. Uh, mm on YouTube, but they also, you know, steal their code. And, you know, this, this whole thing about a bug is basically the, their version of a bug is doesn't let me like steal the code and do what I want to do with it. So it's, it's very interesting how bugs are defined. Um, Jonathan, any thoughts on this article? Not really. It's a, um, I think Lee kind of put it really quite well, you know, it's, it's kind of, kind of, well, I was going to use bizarre, but it's not bizarre. It just doesn't nope. really, in, in many different layers, it doesn't show them in the enormous great light, does it, Lee? No. 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 On the flip side, we did read a very biased article, though, on WP Tavern. So, we uh, did. We did, uh, actually. <laughs> extremely biased. <laughs> extremely biased. Nope. <laughs> You're right. You've got to get out of your bubble. Uh, there's, there's, <laughs> a, there's an alternative truth. I, I got to tell you, you know, <laughs> this just proves that licenses are only uh, as enforceable as, as people are, like, willing to um, actually honor them. So uh, there mm -hmm. you go. Well, actually, uh, um, just to finish off, actually, this whole area, there was, I um, was listening to the Matt report, and he had, um, had a lawyer on who specializes in um, this area, and listening to it all it is extremely complicated if you really, really go down this path yeah i mean it, it seems like the resolution is going to end up in in court um if if that's what they want to do and and automatic uh and the wordpress foundation might pursue it just on principle of mm -hmm. this is obviously a big middle finger just to uh the wordpress foundation of of like uh you know we basically like ganked your code and now you're going to try and make us use your license and we're just not going to do it. The lawyer's Christmas time. <laughs> and, and we know how, how uh, Matt Mullenweg is about, you know, people who, uh, you know, when you do things to just be defiant, you know, you know how that goes. Yeah. Second news story uh, was about how News Corp Australia made WordPress scale to a, uh, you know, basically like an enterprise news site. And what was really interesting about this is uh, they had an old CMS. It was kind of clunky and bulky, and they had to uh, port some of the HTML over and be able to 
in the old cycle, they basically had like monthly uh, deploys to production, but they, they wanted to build something that was more efficient and where they could deploy to production on a, you know, a, a better schedule. And so Newscore worked with the project partner XWP on putting together like a really robust system where they have 58 different um, staging areas where they can deploy to production basically is like uh, mimicking production as, as much as humanly possible. Kim, any thoughts on, on this story? I loved it because it's way bigger than anything I would ever touch or be involved with now that I don't work in, you know, corporate environments anymore. Right. But, you know, that's the one thing you hear people talk about with WordPress when they, you know, oh, well, it won't scale, it won't this. And obviously they had to jump through some hoops and, you know, write these custom plugins and, and change it, uh, do some custom post types. But, I mean, that's about as scaled as you can get. That's about as big as you can get, if you really think about it, a news organization running. So I loved the success of it, you know, in the end, even though it took some work. I liked that. No, definitely. People who say that, uh, you know, WordPress cannot work in the enterprise level, there's definitely a lot of examples where it is the right solution and it can scale. Uh, Jackie, thoughts on this article? The thing I was wondering about is, you know, at, do you reach a point where maybe an enterprise edition of WordPress or a fork of it is where things are going to go because they were specifically talking about all the widgets and the fact that they're all in one array and you needed to create custom host types. So it almost sounds like um, some of that architecture could be rewritten and to make it much easier to scale in the future. So maybe larger organizations would be using that. It's like, you know, WordPress started off as a very small, you know, blogging platform. So I don't think it was um, intentionally architected for scalability and now of course people are wanting to it wasn't intentionally architected (laughs) (laughs) it wasn't intentionally crafted for for, to be able to scale is what I'm thinking and it just sounds like people there's a lot of smart people who are trying to figure out ways to scale it and that makes a lot of sense and I think there could be opportunities then that'll grow from that maybe there will be a um, new version or a forking or some plugins that are done for it that'll make it so that scaling will be easier. But I think at the heart of it all, a lot of it is just the way the database is built that um, has limitations. No, and I, I do see what you're saying here. Lee's where, nodding his head, yes. Where it, yeah, where it says scale proved to be a problem. The WordPress's default storing of widget configurations in a single array in the options table meant as the number of widget instances grew into the thousands of platform hit memory limits, causing big performance problems. So yeah, they did re-architect it, the widget storied array into a custom post type because, again, so they did have to get creative, you know, and, and that is like a thing WordPress is like you know adaptable but you know sometimes you need like a technical expert to go in and and help you with those certain things when you hit a certain level of complexity sally any thoughts on this article well i'm wondering now that this has been figured out whether it's something that you know wordpress.com vip is going to roll out for other uh, of their customers because they have a number of news organizations uh, using uh, the WordPress.com VIP services, and that seems to be one place that uh, enterprises go. 
in order to have that uh, level. And of, of course, the, you know, the people at WordPress.com have had some experience scaling things in the course of creating WordPress.com. Yeah, definitely. Lee, any thoughts? Yeah, I, well, first of all, I wish I'd have been involved in this project. Five million. Come on, guys. <laughs> money, yeah. money, money. Money, money. <laughs> um, but also the the thing that I mean, obviously the the whole thing about the uh, arrays, uh, you know, all those widgets in there. But also the thing that really frustrates me about WordPress. I love WordPress. Don't get me wrong, but it's actually post meta. Um, because you actually have post meta that's stored in a separate table in WordPress. So if you've got one post type that's got 10 fields, um, you then have 10 records in the post meta table that are all linked to the original post. So that's just one post. The minute you've got a news website with hundreds and hundreds of posts, you've got a post meta table that is just stupendously humongous. Um, and that drives me absolutely insane. So for the largest sites, we actually use pods. There's a table storage option for in pods where you can actually change the WordPress post meta to store all of the data, including, you know, you know, all of your uh, fields, et cetera, in just one table, which is pretty damn cool. Um, so that's what we do for that. But the, I, I read this with, uh, yeah, with sheer delight that, um, you know, people uh, were able to go through WordPress and say, hey, you know what, that sucks. We're going to rewrite that bit so that we can scale this uh, and make this work for a larger organization. And it's great to see WordPress, you know, being used on such a, a great scale. And I love the idea about potentially an enterprise version and or even just, WordPress development being pr approached at a more enterprise level in general so that anyone, everyone can benefit from it because that post-meta thing is one of those things that really grinds my gears. No, and I'm glad you brought that up. That That is true. When you have like a lot of post-meta attached to mm. posts and you have like media sites with thousands or hundreds of thousands of, of posts, that necessitates like a different thing. And I'm, I'm glad you gave, uh, you know, a tip like with, pods there that that is like a good solution yeah uh, so thank you for that uh jonathan any any thoughts yeah i, I agree with the other panelists but also i was uh, interested they used this php template engine twig um i haven't used it myself i have used other when i was more active in um wordpress development front end when i was a lot more active um i did utilize engine but i forgot what it was actually but um i was i was intrigued that you used twig and then i had a quick look at it and it looks really interesting i don't have either lee or any of the other panel you've used um a, a php template engine like twig before use twig no nope, nope. no i've heard of it have not used it but it looks interesting though doesn't it I'll have to check it out and find out. We'll put a link to that in the show notes. Yep. Um, yep, definitely. So the third article um, in our WordPress news stories was from uh, Zao.is, uh, is Jason Santon. Uh, and this is, what is the discovery phase and why do I need it? A very intriguing article that everyone should check out. Uh, Kim, thoughts on this? Well, I love the, you know, I love explaining that I'm big into discovery phases, even with my students, when they're doing all the work, we start with a planning guide, which is an easier way to say it to people that aren't thinking technically. And that was my only thought. I, I love the information. I love the explanation. But I did kind of, as I read it, it, it's almost developers writing for developers. It still is more development speak, I felt like, than front-end customer speak, who are going to look at it and go, oh, yeah, I get that. 
Um, but, uh, you know, any of us who've done client work know that if you start without discovery, you're going to hate everybody and yourself by the end of the project or maybe 10 minutes in, <laughs> I thought. Usually 10 minutes in. Yeah. yeah, yeah that's it. <laughs> No, and that's an excellent point. Um, you know, and discovery is, it, it, we tend to think about things in development kind of more in terms of like what's easy for us. So we think about like the technical aspects and how we're going to do things. But discovery forces us to be in the client's shoes and see things from their perspective and find out like what things are, you know, valuable to them and, and what things they're concerned about. Jackie, any thoughts on discovery or this article? I actually liked the article a lot. I read it, and some of the uh, things that it touched on, one of them that was, that was really good is when you're working like in a team environment and you may have developers that are uh, overthinking and, and providing more functionality than one was asked for is like a common scope creep that, that can happen. And I thought that was very helpful because most of the times as developers, we're usually focused on the client wanted more than they originally asked for. But the flip side of that was, yeah, you know, um, making sure that your development team is sticking to <clears throat> doing the specs the way they were. And if they do see something that they would need to bring that up and have a meeting about or have a discussion about it and get an approval before saying, oh, yeah, it'll only take me two more hours. Let me just go ahead and do this. It'll be better, right? And that can just add to additional cost on a project. So other than what you would normally take out of the article, I thought that was a really good takeaway is to be mindful of, yes, I can continue tweaking this for days if I like and make it as fancy as possible, but that may not actually be what the client needs. And that rolls back to what the whole gist of the article was is, you know, really understanding what the needs are of the client and that discovery phase is really important so that you both understand what each other's expectations are, you know, so I, I know what I need to build that needs to be delivered and I know what you're thinking in your mind about what you're receiving or what you expect to receive, you know, and I, I think those are really important and I think doing a discovery um, on projects is way better than answering that question. Well, can you give me a ballpark estimate? What do you think it's going to cost to do this project? And most of us can say, you know, you can build a website in a day and you can build a website in six months. Those are totally different projects. So it's not it's not an easy question to answer without a lot of facts. No, and I will agree. And, and there's so many things that, that I, I think are important about discovery. And, and I'm glad that this article is being circulated and, and like what you said, people always ask for a ballpark figure, but, um, you know, without talking to the client, it's really hard to know like what it's going to entail. And because they don't know, they're just shopping on price uh, a lot of times when they're asking that, that mm -hmm. question. They have no idea what goes into a website. They have no idea, you know, what we do as far as that, because let's face it, a lot of people don't buy web designer development all that often. So, um, you know, discovery is, is a great way for, for everyone to, you know, put stuff out there. Um, you know, Sally, uh, what have your experiences been with discovery and, and uh, thoughts on this article? Uh, my experience with discovery is that if you don't, you know, most projects that fail do so because of failures of discovery. Mm. Uh, you know, followed, I think, by failures of communication. Uh, because, you know, there are times when even with a third discovery process, something else 
you know, comes up and, and, you know, not addressing it right away is, is usually a problem. Um, you know, I first came across the term discovery in um, uh, the legal arena. You know, that this is what ha has to be done, uh, you know, in, in the course of a, a lawsuit or a divorce or, or pretty much anything. It's like you have to find out. Uh, you know what what assets and debts are there, or or what you know all of that kind of thing, and uh, you know before you can have a a fair division of 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 your assets in a, in a divorce, you have to kind of know what they are, uh, and uh, you know before you can provide any kind of a, a an estimate or or a product scope. Uh, you know, you really have to know what it is that, that you need to do. Because, yeah, people ask for a ballpark pick figure, and it's like, yeah, we don't even know if we're playing, you know, baseball or basketball or, or, or football yeah. yet. Yep. No, that's a great point. And, and something that you brought up that, that I'm reminded of is people can say, oh, I just need – they might think it's a basic site, or they might, you know, say, well, it shouldn't take it too long, which is words if you ever hear – run away but uh another story but um there's things that always come out later like once you you know start it's like oh i also need this and i also need that and it's if you do discovery from the start you'll get all those things out on the table and if you skip discovery um they're going to bring those things up and then somebody is going to have um you know a bad experience whether it's you or the client or both of you Lee, thoughts on discovery process? How essential is it? Uh, absolutely essential. Now, the minute somebody does say to you, can we have a ballpark price? That is definitely a humongous alarm bell. Uh, and you have to educate them uh, mainly on the fact that whatever amount of money they might be thinking they have to spend probably does not equate to what it is that you could deliver for that money. So what I tend to do is flip that around. I actually, even before they get to ask the question, one of the first questions we would actually ask them is, first of all, why do you need to do this and why is it important to your business? We you know what are the advantages going to be to do this. Do you need to do whatever this is? And then secondly, you know, what current budget do you have? Are you looking to literally throw a theme on the internet and whack in a couple of plugins for a few hundred quid? Or are you serious about this project you want to put in, you know, multiple thousands of pounds because that's going to help us know even if we can start to work together. Then at that point, you can then get onto that whole discovery phase. And the, the two major things for me on the discovery phase, and I, I do enjoy reading this, definitely developer speak this article rather than something I'd send to clients because I don't think they'd understand it. But two things for me would be user stories are so freaking important and we make that fun with a client so we'll do uh, user stories we give people different names we actually create chapters and all sorts of stuff and we just create a whole massive user story about everything that everyone gets to do on whatever system it is we're going to build which actually ends up becoming a really funny technical spec that everybody can read um so, so there's that, but there's also this other thing, MVP, minimum viable product. So throughout the discovery phase, my job is to say why, 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 all the way through uh, to, to get to that point where we're actually developing the best solution that's going to give them the best bang for their buck and they can start, they can get launched quicker. The whole point of MVP is get launched quicker because some of the ideas you have now are probably crap. And when you get people using this system, you're going to get new, even greater ideas. And also you're going to be making more money so you can then make the system even better. So yeah, great article, definitely something to inspire us devs. Not sure it's quite uh, consumer friendly um, at the moment. 
There you go. That's me. No, agree with everything you said. Uh, Jonathan, thoughts on Discovery and this article? Well, it's kind of linked, plug, plug, to our, pre- our last interview that went live today, wasn't it? Jonathan? Yes, it is. Go John, check it out. With Jonathan Stark, another Jonathan. Yep. Uh, um, he, um, he had some great points about this. So I thought I'd throw the article in because he said, first of all, you mustn't call it discovery. You say you say discovery to client unless they're kind of educated or higher up. They're going to say, why should I pay for this? The first thing they're going to say is, why should I pay for discovery? And then, of course, you can give them all the arguments. But um, Jonathan, um, he said, don't call it discovery, didn't he, John? You call it anything but that. And he call goes, it road mapping. Road mapping. He called it road mapping, didn't he? Um, and he had some other suggestions as well, didn't he? So do listen to the episode, folks, and learn, educate yourself. Um, but I think apart from very, very simple tasks, you know, like, you know, I want this moved or I want this plugin installed. And, you know, it depends on the plugin, you know. I, I say that, but if they want to install WooCommerce, it might be a plugin. <laughs> but so even that has its parameters. But unless it's a very small, um, you know, problem or the parameters are very, very clearly defined. If you go into a project without discovery, I I really, I think you're going on this. It could work out fine, but in the end, you're going to end up in a death march, aren't you? And it's going to be painful. Yeah, that's the path to unprofitability. And then, you know, without discovery, if you don't do a proper one, you're going to end up um, with a bad estimate and you're going to be unhappy. Client's going to be unhappy. Everyone is going to be unhappy. And and on the comical side, I have had clients that have been able to hold it together for the first interview. Uh, As I work with them on the discovery, I've realized they're bonkers. And then, uh, and then I've decided to walk away from the job because it's obvious they're totally bonkers. And um, it's kind of saved my bacon. It takes one to no one, doesn't it? Yeah, it does, exactly. Yeah. It does, yeah. <laughs> and, uh, um, so true, Lee, so true. And, uh, um, uh, as the, you know, they can hold it together for a couple of conversations, but... If you're having a discovery and a bit more than that, they normally can't hold it together. And you soon realize they would like to say they're bonkers, John. It's absolutely true. One of the things you discover may be that you don't want to work together. (laughs) true. Great, great point. Uh, With that, we're going to head to our break. And then when we come back, we're going to be talking our main topic, which is pricing models for web design and development services. See you after the break. Do you want to spend more time making money online? Then use WP Tonic as your trusted WordPress developer partner. They will keep your WordPress website secure and up to date so you can concentrate on the things that make you money. Examples of WP Tonic's client services are landing pages, page layouts, widgets, updates, and modifications. WP Tonic is well known and trusted in the WordPress community. They stand behind their work with full, no question asked, 30 day money back guarantee. So don't delay. Sign up with WP Tonic today. That's wp-tonic.com just like the podcast
We're coming back from our break and we're talking our main topic today, which is uh, pricing models for web design and development services. Uh, Something I want to ask the panel later around the room, we'll just go around, but um, when it comes to selling services or if you have a product, uh, maybe in Kim's case, um, you know, what is your current pricing model and how did you come to, you know, fall on that pricing model? Kim. You are going to call on me first again. Okay. Yeah, we just um, <laughs> keep sending things in order. I'm always on the spot first. Um, okay, so my current pricing model is a blended model. Uh, I don't build sites for anyone anymore, but I do have a combination of services and products. So I have flat out product. I have membership sites for support. And then I do actual live one-on-one training as well as coaching. So I have a blended model with that. Uh, my products range from 149 to, I think, 999 right now. Mm-hmm. One of those is about to jump up, and then my hourly rate ranges from 100 an hour to 180 an hour, depending on where you are in that process. So the people who buy big packages from me already, they get my best rate, and they also get first option for. I set aside 10 hours a week that I'm actually available for one-on-one and they get first dibs on that oh and that's how mine works because i still have to do my content too i used to let myself get too wrapped up in the one-on-one and then all of a sudden i wasn't creating the products and letting those people down that had paid for that so when it came to like uh getting to a place where where you um had this pricing in place what were what were the things that you had to go through to kind of you know settle on on these types of pricing um it was hard at first because of course if people are price shopping they're going to compare me to the one of the guys I know who's overseas who does stuff for $25 an hour and um it, it just became a point where it's like well do you want it done now do you want the question answered now? You've already waited three weeks for this. And once I figured that out with people, then it was like I could say it and, and it made sense for me. It made sense for what I needed for my own income and where I felt my value was. And once I had a few people that I could give that turnaround to, then it was pretty easy to, to stand you know, firm on it. But it was hard at first. It was like, you know, how do you warrant that when I can get any other developer, maybe even a better developer than you? Because I'm the first to say I'm not the world's best developer. But they can see that I can get it answered for them. And I bring to it not just the development, but many years as a business owner, uh, many years in IT, doing database administration and different things. So I can bring this full picture. You know, like I've had a lot of emergency calls recently because of... Um, people converting to SSL with all the new Google stuff. Oh, that's true, yeah. not doing it well. And one day I had four other people calling me because they just didn't understand the underlying codes and then some, some of it was some DNS stuff on, on uh, firewalls and four sites were down. So that's when you can say, okay, I'm not, I, can, I can answer that for you because these are the skill sets I bring. That's how I did it. No, I think that's excellent. 
um, you know, you, you frame it with what you bring to the table. I'm going to, I'm going to jump order. I'm going to ask the other product guy in the room. Uh, you know, Jonathan, you know, when it comes to like a pricing with WP tonic, um, and stuff like that, and you have another, uh, offering too, like MailRite, but you know, how, how, uh, did you come to the pricing on that? You know, what, what are the thought processes that go into that? Well, it's really, really difficult. Pricing is a nightmare. Um, but specifically around web development, I um, think to, once again, the conversation we had with Jonathan, I think a blended a blended um, structure might be the best. What I mean by blended is that John of the other Jonathan that we interviewed pointed out, having some fixed price products um, is can be very beneficial for the developer because it's kind of introductory um, service product which isn't high risk that enables you then to build that relationship with a client that you want to build that relationship on um, so it decreases like most things that we buy are on a kind of fixed price services tend not to but they they are unusual compared to most things that we buy which are on a fixed price or option based model so with wp tonic um we deal with small jobs um where we offer what we're really offering is the relationship where you're not having to go on to a freelance um uh, marketplace and you might be lucky and you might not we we are active in the WordPress community and we stand by our work with a 30-day cast iron guarantee. Um, but that's where you're buying um, um, that relationship. And then we have a couple set prices and then a custom. Um, so I would suggest to most developers, you know, it might be worthwhile looking at something that, that you can offer at a fixed price. But obviously most of your work... Um, but then you get on onto the debate which is linked to retainers hourly rate or um you know you you quote quote on value value pricing um is another really thing that's kind of built in the wordpress community that whole argument around value pricing and what it is and is it a a, a correct model that uh, a lot of people say it it encourages gouging, um, but I don't really believe that. I think that's more down to the um, to the um, ethics of the individual rather than the conception of the of the whole idea. If you understand me, John, I do. I, I do. Um, you know, Jackie, what 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 is your pricing model, and and how did you come to uh, your pricing structure? My pricing structure is blended and it's different for different um, projects that I do. So if I'm doing like a custom web development project, I guess over the years now I've um, focused more on adding more milestones into projects uh, for, for pricing. I originally started off with maybe like a 50-50, you know, 50% up front and 50% right before we launch. But I've found that to be problematic um, at times. And I, I definitely have embraced more of a, you know, 
adding more milestones in and more payments in, right, and deliverables in and tying it to those. And of course, that requires some really good scoping of the project and pricing for that. So pricing wise, for most of those, they're fixed price, but they have a really detailed scope. So we have um, a way in there for you to easily um, change the scope of the project and, you know, request more features or remove things and uh, we can go in and adjust that. So that covers that. I also provide client maintenance. So that has a completely different pricing structure. You know, that's like a flat fee every month for a specific deliverable of service that you're right. going to get for that. And then there's an hourly rate for, you know, one-off support uh, things or small tasks that need to be done. So in those cases, it's completely different for all of those. It's not, uh, I don't use one pricing structure. And I do think the value-add pricing is a good model, although it is, you know, not always the best model for each situation. So you, you definitely want to look at that carefully. I think the hourly model on large projects is is a difficult model. And I, I think it pins you against, you know, your client wants you to work as little hours as possible. For you to make more money, you have to bill more hours. And I think that there's an inherent conflict in that. And I think some blended mode of that is better, especially on very large projects. That's my take. Here's a question. You always do like a, a discovery phase. It depends on the project, right? So if, right. if somebody says, I need a five-page website um, and it's just a brochure website, there really isn't any discovery that's needed for that, typically, other than a conversation. Um, but if they want an e-commerce site, well, then we do need to do a discovery on that because you, I need to know how many products are we going to have? Is it 100? Is it 1,000? Is, you know, what kind of functionality do they want with those products? Um, what capabilities, how much, what, what different shipping methods are they going to use? There's lots of things to do with that. So that does involve scoping that out. You can't just give somebody a price for an e-commerce store uh, unless you know a lot of details about the store and how they plan to operate it. I ran one for 10 years, so I know very much um, yes. what's involved in all of that. And uh, over the years, added a lot of functionality to what I was doing. So you definitely want to have those discussions with them on, based on the type of site that you're going to build and how they're going to use it. Definitely. Uh, Sally, what, are, what, are you, what is your pricing structure? Do you have a mix like Jackie? I have a similar thing where I have, you know, similar to Jackie, but what is your pricing structure and how did you come to it? Um, I, uh, you know, I kind of admire those people who can have some kind of service that's like it's a flat rate package and it's predictable. And it's, but the problem is I don't like to do projects like that. You know, I don't want to do exactly the same thing over and over again to the point where I know exactly like how long it will take and, and can, can offer it if, uh, at a flat rate. Um, and, uh, and these days if somebody comes to me and they want a five page brochure site that they're going to update once a year at most, I tell them not to use WordPress. They don't need the, the, the maintenance uh, load that comes with a WordPress site if, if, if that's really what they want. Um, but uh, so, you know, usually what I will do is go with, uh, you know, is go through that discovery phase, work out a detailed scope, come up with a project, right? Say, and then say, you know, if you want something that's not outlined in this scope of work, it will be billed hourly at. Uh, and 
<clears throat> so there are some things uh, where, you know, and yeah, most of the time, you know, a, a client isn't going to want to pay hourly for, for a big project because they don't know what it's going to cost. And like, you know, case in point was my last big project. No, no, let's just jump in. I've worked with you before. I, I'm comfortable paying your hourly rate. Oh, yeah, one new car for Sally later. Um, <laughs> and, and, you know, the, the, the great news is they paid me a ton of money and they were thrilled about it. Um, you know, they're happy, they're happy with the website. You know, they are going to bring somebody on who, who charges less to do kind of like the little ongoing maintenance. Uh, right. And I always assumed they would. I didn't think I was going to be working for them for, forever. Um, but in most cases, uh, you know, even when a company has a reasonable budget, there are some limits on what they can spend. There are cash flow issues. There is. so, <laughs> so they want to take the, the time to scope it out. So you know, I have some clients in the hourly for you know little fixes, updates, this is that throughout the you know throughout the course of the month, and I just build them for however many hours it was. Um, but in general, on a new project, I'm, I'm going to work out a, a project rate. Yeah, definitely. And I try and do that too, similar to Jackie and yourself. I do a discovery phase, do a project rate. And then if there's like ongoing maintenance into some sort of agreement. Uh, Lee, you know, how do you uh, price and scope your projects? How did you, uh, did you, did you go through uh, periods of trying different things? Absolutely. Um, initially, I was this. And then kind of just made it up as I went along. And I think the first website I ever charged for was £150, which is essentially $200. And really realized quite quickly that that is not a sustainable model unless I clone myself, which is not uh, going to happen. So um, uh, the way I kind of worked from there then was then worked out, well, how long does these things take me? And what is my kind of hourly rate found a website worked out that my ridiculously low hourly rate that matched what my old job was, was a stupid idea because you can't sell every hour that you can work, uh, which is in theory eight hours a day. Um, so I upped my rate. I'm now, you know, well, I then was $100 an hour. I then work out, well, roughly how long does everything take me? So for me, because I'm making a lot of WordPress themes from designs, I actually can say, okay, well, for um, a homepage layout um, and wrapping that up into a WordPress theme, the average fee is going to be X. And then for every single layout on top of that, it's going to be XXX per layout. But there are some limitations to those. You know, you're only allowed 10 custom fields. You're only allowed um, so many, like you're, you're allowed up to two drop-down menus, all those sorts of things. So I can really kind of productize converting just a standard design into a WordPress theme that's going to be used for a client. So that's cool. And all the agencies I work with have that. It's called the Estimate Grid, and they already... Um, work from my estimate grid. Um, sometimes they don't even bother talking to us because they've worked with us so many times they know what we're going to build for them and they just go through the estimate grid, set their budget for that so that they can then quote their client and they'll usually put 20% contingency in there as well. So by the time it comes to me, there's no surprises anyway. Um, for the bigger projects though, which we do like working on much better is where we go in and do the whole MVP and at that point, that's, uh, sorry, the whole discovery uh, to develop the MVP. And at that point, that's where we become the consultants anyway. And we can actually help establish an overall budget uh, with the client, etc. And at that point, that's where we will actually work on project rate where we'll say, okay, 
um, you know, we're going to cost you this much of your budget because everything we've outlined, we believe we can deliver within X amount of weeks based on our existing resource, etc. And the fact that this has some value to you, you're going to make some money out of this. And we're also a business and need to feed all our staff and all that jazz. Um, and then again, we'll then have an agreed hourly rate for anything that comes out of that outside of that. And, um, with regards to anything that does come outside of it, we're really super strict. Um, if somebody says, and we'd like it to be able to do this, we all agree that's out of scope. And um, we will also not do it unless it's provable that it's totally essential to the project, um, that it must be done, whatever this new crazy idea that the client has had. Uh, and we're really bullish about that, which can be quite annoying probably to the client, but the the purpose of that is we all agree to schedule the minute we start introducing something else, um, which seems like a good idea at the time, it kind of tends to screw everything else up that comes after it. So we tend to just, you know, uh, we're very rigid uh, on all of that. But yeah, so bigger projects is always a big budget set with a contingency just in case. Um, and for the themes, it's pretty easy to predict that sort of thing. Um, and I think, I think Sally, you said you'd probably find that boring for us. We we enjoy it because we love doing WordPress themes all the time. I could just do them till the cows come home. I think they're great fun uh, and they're very easy to predict those. It's the functionality and features um, right. that require the discovery that is a total unknown. And one of the important things is to know how much budget does that client have to spend uh, and also what is the value going to be to them because it's, it's really important and you're a business. You need to make money. You can't just charge for every hour. Because really, you should be charging for every hour that you spent learning to be as good as you were, you damn well are. So you might as well be getting some money for it. So, Lee, what's your what's your attitude to the um, to something that's grown in the WordPress, not in web design in general? That this concept of value pricing. Well, what's your attitude towards that, Lee? I'm all for value pricing. Right. There you go. That's good. There you go. There you go. <laughs> Sally, I can't hear you. You got the silence, Sally. I can't hear Sally. That's very. Oh, oh, you're back again, Sally. All right. There you um, go. I said the problem with value-based pricing is the client has to be able to articulate the value, and and so you know, I, and I think larger companies, people who are more experienced, they, you know, they've, they've developed some level of understanding of that, or you can, you can talk them through to it. It's like, yes, okay, if something is broken now, like how much is it costing you? If yeah. something is, you know, how much more money do you want to, you know, make with your store that you're, you know, not making for whatever reason, but some people just haven't got the faintest idea with the, what the value to them is. And, and they, they're just very bad about all the numbers involving their their business and so it's hard to to get to that point but you know if you charge somebody what something is worth to them you know some percentage of the amount of money that they're going to make or, or save from it even if that's a like you know several times what you might have charged them on the basis of, of an hourly rate you're not gouging them because it's worth that to them mm -hmm. right um Amen. Ian Altman is a sales coach, I know, and he just wrote a sales book, and that's one of his things is price is only an issue when the customer thinks it is, and then you have to convince them, but he tells a story of having something where it was going to be like $300,000 to convert this customer's images from mainframe to computer, to, to where they could put them on the internet, and he went in just knowing he was going to be fired. He tells a great story, and the customer's like, oh, that's great. When can we do it? He's like, because it was costing them $3 million a month 
not being able to have them on the internet when their competitors did. Hmm. So it was like, you know, that's sometimes is how you have to position value. If, if the customer doesn't see it as an issue, boom, you're good. If they do, then it might be about explaining the value in a way that they can see it, not from a development state, but from a business state. I think as well, I'm lucky with the clients I have because a lot of these are enterprise level clients. So they've already come to the table with tons of paperwork. When I start asking all these why questions, they're already throwing charts in front of me saying, this is why we're losing money here. We want to grow in this industry, etc. So I'm very lucky in those sorts of clients. When I've dealt with local businesses though, that's definitely been an issue and that, you know, they don't know how they don't know what the value of something is to them. They just think they need to do something. And then yes, it's, then you have to take them through that whole process of working it out. Um, so we tend to be lucky in that regard. We don't have as many clients in, in that area. So, and definitely I want to follow up with that because um, th this last year, like I, I, I started doing uh, like a roadmap or a discovery for like every client. And if I thought they were smaller, I would just charge less basically, but I would make sure I'd charge them. Um, and, and, you know, and I would value price like everything this year, um, save when I subcontract to, to larger agencies, maybe similar to, to what you do. But when I own the client relationship, it's, uh, you know, it, 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 I have found that the more mature the business is, the easier it is for them to wrap their head around like value pricing. The less mature the business is, um, the smaller the business is the more that people tend to price shop and kind of the more that you need to kind of like, you know, walk them through that. Have you ever had like, you know, people, is it, do, what are the common things that you see like when small businesses push back on, on pricing or are they just looking for the cheapest or how does, what has been your experience? Is that me? That's you. Yeah. Uh, well, if someone's come to me based on price, um, the minute I know that, prices way way too significant to them um i'll instantly show them um very kindly how and who they can approach to get that website and um, because it's certainly not something right i, can, I used to help everyone and anyone because anyone throwing a bit of money at me i was like oh my gosh i need money but that's the wrong way of thinking uh, and also i had no niche i had no particular target audience so if someone comes to me even if they're in the target audience but price is their issue you know I, i'm instantly taking them you know I'll, i will help them because they'll always recommend me. i've actually had people who've come to me with no budget i've given them how to go to people per hour and i've helped them say hey look this is how you find a good developer go you know go ahead do that and then they've then recommended me to someone else who needs a website so i've then got business out of that so with people who do come to you who've got not much money it's still good to be kind and helpful to them and help them on the way but definitely help them on the way don't don't become a charity, yes. which I've definitely done in the past and tried to help people for hardly any money. It just bites you in the ass and it's so painful. So, I agree. The people with less, the, the people who have no budget are often like more of time suck than the people who have like a, a good budget. So, uh, question around the room. Uh, when it comes to, um, when it comes to, uh, you know, pricing stuff. Were there any points in your career where you ever struggled in pricing? Um, were there any points where you had a breakthrough moment and the light bulb went off and, and you changed something about the way that you were billing stuff? Kim? 
Um, yeah, I mean, I think I kind of shared some of that was right. I used to have a lot of problems. I used to do exactly what Lee did. Someone would come, they didn't have enough money. And now I do the exact, now I don't develop sites. But even by the time I was done developing one-on-one -on -one sites for people, and I do it now even with my, with my coaching and my training, if someone comes to me and it, everything is price conscious, then, well, you know, I do have this self-paced course. If this is it, you can have that. Or uh, here's the value of the other. And if it's someone that can't see it, well, you know, go on along the lines. And I, as I said, I did that. But initially, it was anybody throwing money at me. And I mean, I think I built a, a extensive WooCommerce site for less than $500 one time. And I just wanted to die by the end. I'm glad I'm not alone, Kim. I'm glad I'm and, not alone. Uh, oh, I've got, I've got a story that beats that one for sure. <laughs> so, so, yes, there was a time it was very hard for me to state my value. And I think, as I said, the light bulb was, I'm a good developer, maybe not the best, but I also bring this very well-rounded picture to it that does provide that value. And if it's not someone who can see that, I'm obviously not the right yeah. solution for them. And I, and I have no problem these days telling people that. Obviously, I'm not the right solution for you. If I can help them find someone else, I will. And uh, if I think that they would just be too mean to anybody, then I, I will just sometimes even have to tell them I don't have a good solution for you because it's still going to be priced higher than what you're obviously valuing this at. Yeah, I think... I don't know if the rest of the panel would agree with this, but I've come to the conclusion there's two fundamental things that you really got to fundamentally understand in a client relationship, and that's expectations and drivers. What are, you know, do you have some feel about their expectations? Because you could, you, I've dealt with people that, by looking at their CV and who they're working for, I thought they were they were going to be very sophisticated in their expectation. And unfortunately, I've been, you know, um, pleasantly surprised or I've been quite shocked at, at their lack of sophistication. So you really got to understand their, what their um, expectation levels are. And secondly, you really got to fundamentally understand the drivers of the project. If you don't understand the drivers of the project, you're you're going to get you, you can surmise why they're doing, why they want something, why they're acting. But if you don't fundamentally understand, it can lead to fundamental problems. No, I couldn't agree more. Um, if you, nobody wants to spend money on a web design project. So unless there's a reason, so understanding why, uh, is a good thing. Uh, Jackie, were, have you ever, you know, what are, when it comes to, you know, getting to the point where you're at now, any light bulb moments where, where things started to click? I think the the point where you first realize you you know you've underpriced projects after project and you start to take a look at how long it's taken you to do something uh, that to me you know got me on the right path about pricing projects and the other is is really avoiding the projects where it's not really in my wheelhouse right something I'm not really fluent in and those typically in the past have been the ones that 
were the least profitable, right? So the yep. client either wanted to pay the least amount of money and I might've just been in a situation where I needed some more cash and, you know, I was like, okay, I don't really have anything lined up this month. Let me go ahead and do this. And it's obviously something that's outside of my scope that I normally do. And then that gives you that double whammy where, you know, you're making $6 an hour by the time you, you finish <laughs> the project. So, and I've had several of those, you know, happen where you think something, or you agree to do something that you think is going to take a few hours. And of course, you didn't scope it properly. And you now realize it's going to take two or three days of your time. And you're frustrated. So um, just sticking to your niche, your niche that will help you um, be able to to price things appropriately as you go forward. Because every time you get something, if it's something you've never done before, and it's completely outside of anything you worked on, you need to be careful on those because you, you don't want to um, assume what it's going to, what, how much time it's really going to take you. No, I, I think that's a totally, uh, you know, great thing too. Uh, Sally, like any breakthrough moments uh, where you said, aha, like this is uh, what I need to be accepting and I need to throw away uh, all this other stuff that I've been doing. Well, you know, I think like a lot of people, I started out charging far too little because I didn't understand about, you know, running a business and your overhead and your expenses and all those things that, you know, they're not, if, if you're being paid as an employee, you know, somebody else is doing those things and they're getting, you know, the money for that. But when you're self-employed, you have to do it. You have a lot fewer billable hours. You have, you know, you have a lot more you have to cover. You have bigger taxes. You have et cetera, et cetera. So there was just kind of the long process of doing that. But I have to say that, that billing hourly for this big project was a huge revelation in a couple of, of ways. Um, one of them being that, yeah, even though I hadn't felt necessarily that I was getting a bad deal out of the, the way I had priced projects, that I was still probably underestimating them, uh, you know, fairly substantially. And, and so it's like, oh, okay. So a project on a scale like that is actually worth that much money. And, mm-hmm. and, and, you know, anything similar that I see, I should expect and the client should expect to cost that much money. And if it's as complex as that, you know, it's, it's going to need a team of people working on it. I'm not going to be able, even if I have all the skills, I can't do all those things at once. You know, I'm going to need, you know, other people to, to work on uh, things like, you know, content strategy and development or, or, you know, on this project, I hired somebody to do the to do the CSS while I concentrated more on the, on the PHP and, and, you know, that, that kind of, of thing. So, uh, yeah, you know, that was kind of like, yeah, okay. You know, this stuff is, uh, is still worth more than I was charging for it. And it, I'm not necessarily going to like need to raise my hourly rates. I don't know. I might, I haven't done it for a long time, but I need to expand my understanding of, of how, much time it really takes to do a sophisticated project. Definitely. Um, so I'm going to start with Lee on this one and go around the room. This is just kind of a rapid fire question, but has can anybody like give an example of a time where they maybe didn't get like a didn't get a client because their price is too low, or a time where it was you didn't get a client because your price was actually uh, either too too high or too low, and and really, what I'm specifically like pointing out, what you said, Sally, is where there's is this a thing that happens? 
do people like say you didn't understand like the scope your price was too low um i've never had a too low complaint ever oh good for you <laughs> but that's um because when i was too low people were like yes uh sucker um and uh and obviously nowadays i tend to get a lot of oh that's that's too much money and and then again if i'll say okay fair enough i i either do a lot less so you can pay less money or i help you find someone else so that tends to be the problem yeah. i'll have which is rare to be honest because yeah. again of the industry i'm in so but when that does happen when we're too high we either do we either educate them on how we can do some less so they could afford us i.e go back to the mvp what's essential um or if we're definitely not a fit then we'll always help someone find somewhere else to go exactly you can't just turn them away you got to point them towards someone uh jonathan have you ever lost a a project because you bid too low Lost the project if you went too low. Well, it's really dependent on if you're dealing. Lee's hinted this. It's really dependent on what the customer is. If it's agency based, medium to enterprise, or small local business. And I mean by small, and I don't mean by small local that they're local. You know, you can have substantial businesses that are in your area where you live in a 50 mile radius depending where you live it's really um how long they've been in business you know how profitable the business it will totally change the kind of conversations you have some clients um you know and it's down to expectation you can have a client that says to you that they're making five thousand dollars a month from their website yet they they will bulk at spending, um, they will expect you to sort out a complicated problem for four hundred dollars, won't they? Jonathan, I've had people like tell me they close like seven million dollar deals, like you know, uh, every couple months. But oh, oh, uh, like a few thousand for a website? <gasps> I don't know. So no. you know, it's expectation. Yeah. Um, and I really question uh, Kim. Uh, you know, is it? it yeah. Yeah, I really question. Go ahead. No, go ahead. When you get an individual that's saying they're making seven million, and then you give them a quotation, and it, you know, uh, and they bulk at it, I, I really question it. Uh, I, yeah. Yeah. Alarm bells all round. Well, that, that, that's yeah, that's that's early in my career story. So yeah, I'll tell you. Kim, Kim, yeah. I did lose one. Um, it was 1996, 1997 when I had my first web dev company. And it was the very first time I ever gave a custom quote to one of the Fortune 500s. Oh. And it was about building an online course, which was, I mean, we're talking flat HTML pages with everything, you know, next page, next page, back, CGI scripts for quizzes, things like that. And I gave them a quote that I thought was quite high. And you, I could absolutely tell that they knew I had no earthly idea what I was quoting. And after I gave it and I looked over it, I was so, I, I was so thankful. I was in such panic mode while I was waiting for them to come back to me because I realized that I had just booked myself for 1,420 hours in 30 days. Do the math. Yeah. <laughs> get, get a time turner. <laughs> With, without having a team behind me because I was so new and you could tell that the person is just like she has 
I mean, and it was, you know, I got it because of a favor, somebody I knew within the company from when I was in corporate. And, uh, and that was just my, my big wake up call of if you're going to scope a project like that, you have to know you have the team and you've got to scope the numbers and everything else because, uh, uh, yeah, I lost it for, again, what I thought was very substantial money, but nowhere near what that project would have cost. Jackie, any uh, great stories of, of losing or gaining something because of being too high or too low? I haven't had one where I was too low, but I definitely have had one where I thought it was too high and I got it anyway. So that was like a surprise for me in that regard. And then, of course, I think we've all had, like Lee was saying, you know, projects where you give them a quote and they're just like, we can't afford that. And, you know, you try to help them find somebody else. I mean, that's pretty common. But I've had ones where I've priced it and I thought it would be too high and it was just, okay, yep, we're ready to get started. And that kind of made me afraid, like Kim was just saying, is like, did I miss anything? You know, is there, is there yeah. a surprise down the road on this? Um, but um, there was, and other than, you know, the normal things where you end up working for $6 an hour for a project when you finish, when you do the math on it, you said, oh, okay, don't ever do this again. Mm, right. Sally, any, any ones where you've you know, and and because you inspired this, but you know, just to to wrap up this question, like any any ones where you bid too or you missed it because you didn't bid high enough. Not that I'm aware of. I mean, you don't always know why you why you don't get your job. I mean, they will often tell you if if it's too expensive, and and if I'm too expensive for them, that's okay. I, I if people tell me I'm not worth what I'm charging, then I get annoyed. If they tell me they can't afford it, you know, I <laughs> happily uh, you know try to help them find somebody that you know a, a solution they can afford. But, um, I. You know, I, I haven't that I've known of, but I haven't been dealing a lot with enterprises. I remember a guy who had done some podcast consulting for Disney. And he said, if you are going to try to work with a company like that, unless you charge like, you know, $50,000 a month, they won't take you seriously. That's true. So, you know, that was it was something to keep in mind for, uh, you know, I think the, the, the bigger the company, the more you need to charge because they are accustomed to paying huge chunks of money to all of their vendors. And they will think you are too small time and, and not, uh, you know, and don't know what you're doing. There's also something else, guys. Um, whenever you're looking at an estimate that you're making, uh, that you've made, um, I tend to add more on as well because you can always come down in price if you have to. Mm -hmm. It's a lot harder to go up. <laughs> yeah. Very true. Yeah. It's practically, um, you can't say no to nothing, but those discussions, unless it's obvious um, scope creep, are extremely difficult, aren't they, Lee? And Very difficult. Painful discussions that you should really do your best to try and avoid, and you do that by taking. They, they become they, a costly lesson. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you really want to avoid those conversations. And it, it all goes around, John, to everything we said about discovery, understanding the fundamental drivers, the expectations. There's a lot to it, isn't there, John? Well, there's a ton. I mean, it, it's understanding the pain and, you know, understanding, you know, uh, what the expectations are and, and being a good diagnosis of the problem if, if you're given a, 
uh, a good solution, then, you know, it should be a no-brainer, right? Yeah. So. I think we're going to come to the end of this, John, shall we? I think Let's we're... do it. Right. Definitely. Uh, if want to remind everyone, if you're getting value from this show, be sure to go to iTunes, leave us a detailed review. We'd love to get to triple digits uh, with our reviews and, and definitely, you know, maybe we'll shout you out on the air. Uh, our listenership is going up like rocketing up like month after month. And we just want to thank all our listeners, uh, people on the YouTube, people on the, uh, you know, listen to the podcast. We really, really appreciate it. Uh, and with that, let everybody tell us where to find them. Kim, where can we find you? You can find me on Twitter at Kim Schivler or on the web, howtobuildanonlinecourse.com or whitegloveWebtraining.com. Awesome. Jackie, how do we get a hold of you? You can find me at JackieDelia.com or on Twitter at jdelia. Excellent. And be sure to check out Jackie's podcast, Rethink.fm. Yeah. yeah, season two will be starting soon. Excellent. Sally, how do we get a hold of you? You're on mute, Jackie. Uh, uh, yes, I was muted. Uh, sorry, uh, you can find me at WPFangirl.com. I am at Sally Getch on Twitter, and if you can spell my name, I'm unique in Google, so you will find me. Excellent. Lee, how do we get a hold of you? All right, well, you can find me on Twitter. It's um, Lee Jackson Dev, or if you just go to WPInnovator.com, that will find me somehow. Excellent. Do you have a second season coming up? What season are you on? Do you, Me? Do you tra- yeah, do you track I, seasons? I just keep going. <laughs> I'm relentless. Um, I, I, I totally feel you on that. There you go. It's a marathon, not a sprint. Uh, I love it. Jonathan, yeah. how do we get a hold of you? Uh, well, before that, folks, um, please Twitter to our sponsor, Liquid Web. You know, um, Chris Lemmer is now a member of their management team. He will be joining us. Um, in February, hopefully. Um, and um, it's, it's a great name in the WordPress community and it's a great web hosting company. So to show support for the show, please Twitter Liquid Web and tell them that um, you've heard the advert and you um, really love their support of the show. That would be fantastic. How to get hold of me, folks? It's quite easy. Either through Twitter, there is only one Jonathan Denwood, that's at Jonathan Denwood, or you could email me, I will probably get back to you the following day, but I do answer my own email, and that's Jonathan at wp-tonic.com. Excellent, and you can get a hold of me, you can find me at my website, lockdowndesign.com, you can find me on Twitter, lockdown underscore, or follow me on Facebook, uh, just facebook.com slash lockdowndesign. For the WP Tonic Posse, in effect, we're saying sayonara, adios, we out of here. Thanks for listening to WP Tonic, the podcast that gives you a spoonful of WordPress medicine twice a week.